treat every day as if, as if it's your last. Because we never know when we're going to die. But just, yeah, follow your passion. Don't put it off because it might never happen. Um, and enjoy every day as much as you can. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. My guest this week is Neil Wilkie. Neil talked to us on Monday about his relationship paradigm and the elements that he's learned from working with individuals and their personal relationships and how they relate to professional relationships. Today, we're going to turn the spotlight on to Neil and the impact professional relationships have had on his career, which seen him go from a successful business career that gave him all of the big houses, swimming pools, tennis courts, all the bells and whistles, uh, and has taken him through uh, to uh, a changing career uh, as an author and a coach and and uh, a, a psychotherapist, I think is the right term, uh, working with individuals. So, Neil, thank you very much for joining me again. Thanks, and Andy. Did, did I get my terminology right at the end? Yeah, that, that was great. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, uh, as I've explained to you in advance, we, we turn the spotlight onto you uh, for this shorter episode, looking at the impact of professional relationships on your career. And we start by saying, you know, how have they had a positive impact on you uh, on your journey? Yes, I, I, I guess I came into into my career being an employee and being treated as lower than other people. And there was a, a strata. And if you worked hard, you got to the next level and the next level above that, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I always felt in those relationships, I wasn't quite good enough. And I guess that was uh, a reflection of my relationship at home with my father, which uh, is very much of the culture of the traditional old-fashioned Scot that don't don't praise somebody, just tell them what they're doing wrong, and that they'll benefit from that by working harder. So that's where I came from, and those were the steps on that uh, staircase to whatever it was that I was following. And I didn't feel I didn't feel my best attributes were being nurtured. I felt yeah, I was just not not good enough. And I just wonder how many other people have felt that in their climb up, up those staircases. So the professional relationships I had in those times were yeah, striving to be better, but not quite clear where all that was leading. And yeah, when I was an investor, when I did management buy-ins, the professional relationships with the private equity company, the banks, they were all great when business was good and the numbers were growing, but they couldn't really care less about what the company was like to work for. They just wanted money, profit, um, cash. And again, that felt a bit dissonant to me. So the first time I really hit good professional relationships where I felt unequal with a shared purpose was when I joined the mastermind group uh, Vistage. So I ran mastermind groups with them for about 10 years. And that felt very much a collegiate environment. We had a shared purpose to help develop business leaders. And we worked to help each other uh, in our own 
um, in our own worlds to help further that. So, yeah, that, that was the first time where I felt unequal with a real purpose. <coughs> Excuse me. So can, can I just ask, when you say we, I'm assuming you're talking about the community of Vistage Chairs. Yeah, the community of Vistage Chairs. So there's, you know, at that time, there were probably about 70 in the UK and the hundreds around the world. And, yeah, we were all very different people, but there was a very, very open environment of sharing and helping each other, which was great. And also with the members of the mastermind groups, there's yeah, real openness and sharing there. I wasn't standing there as the expert, um, not displaying anything about my issues or problems. So, yeah, when, for example, my late wife was dying of a brain tumor, I was in a community of hundreds of people who were there for me, you know, sharing, sharing the pain and supporting me in that. And I doubt if I'd have had that if I was in a normal professional organization. How do we change that within normal professional organizations? Is that possible? I think it's possible. I think it's about the culture. The culture about being there for each other is about a culture of together we can achieve much more than as individuals. And it's taking away the sort of dog-eat-dog, I need to stand on your shoulders to achieve more, actually by working together, by supporting, challenging each other. We can collectively achieve a lot more and get more fulfillment from it. When, when you talk about the impact that your relationship with your father had uh, on how you were in the workplace, was there, I assume there was a moment where you realised um, how that was influencing how you, how, how, you were, how you were being judged, how you took other people's opinions and, uh, and how you related. What, what happened there? I think it took me until I was in my 40s before I realized that. And as, as interesting, you know, many of the business leaders I've worked with, talked to, they were very much driven by getting the desire to get praise from their father or their desire to get praise from a school teacher or somebody in their youth. And these things continue to echo in the subconscious until you're able to stand back and think, where did this desire, where did the drive come from? Who, who implanted that in me? Um, and for me, yeah, that moment in my 40s, that realisation that actually I was never going to get praise from my father. And did that really matter? Um, the most important person to get praise from is myself. And that was transformative because then I could actually start to focus on the stuff I wanted to do rather than what I thought would please my father. I mean, that one... What, what, one example of that, yeah, I thought I'd hit the big time. I had a nice house with a circular drive, and my father had always wanted the circular drive. I mean, he had been successful in business, but never had the circular drive. That, that was his symbol of real success. And when he came out to the house I'd bought with a circular drive, I expected him to say, well done, son, you've really achieved something important. But he was really upset because I got there before him. That's such a shame. It is. But uh, did, did you ever have the conversation with him about it? No, it's, it's interesting. I didn't really – I only had that virtual conversation with him um, after he died when I was reading his eulogy. Um, and I realised what, what had prevented him from showing, from showing emotion and happiness and so on because you know, he got into Bomber Command at the age of 18 – 
So he spent three or four years flying in Halifaxes above Germany, being shot at, knowing that there's probably 50% chance of surviving this. And what would that young boy have actually done to cope with that fear, to cope with that difficult situation? And he just suppressed his emotions. He couldn't be happy, he couldn't be sad. He just had to do the job. He had to focus on the task he'd been given. And that was carried throughout his life. But yeah, that reflection writing his eulogy was a moment where I could put all that disappointment to rest and realize actually he was a good man. He was a brave man. He was, yeah, the definition of a hero I came up with was somebody does something, they put themselves at risk to help others. And a real hero is somebody who would do that night after night. Um, so yeah, that was the first time I realized he was a real hero. Actually, I could leave all that to rest. I could focus on what was important to me. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I think there's there's something in there as well about how we give meaning to how other people are with us yeah. without really understanding what's going on behind there. So that goes into our other relationships as well, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so many people are carrying this hidden shadow with them throughout their lives. And if only they just could see what it was and let that go, then they could be much happier. Just to finish off on my father, it took me until I was 50 before I said, I love you. And he found that strange, but I'm glad I said it because otherwise it might have been too late. And, you know, why had I suppressed that? Why hadn't I said it earlier? Um, that might have opened him up. So I th I'd say it's, it's really important to have these conversations as soon as you can. Absolutely. I, I, I normally go on and ask about relationships that have gone wrong. Now, there's no indication your relationship with your father went wrong. It's just that there was this disconnect uh, in expectation and communication of that. Did you have anything else in mind in terms of um, relationships that had gone wrong that you wanted to share with us? Other relationships which have gone wrong other than my father? Um, well, I'm on my fourth marriage. First one went wrong very quickly. I was young, she was younger, and it didn't really have much hope anyway. Second relationship lasted for 20 years. And, you know, we, we grew apart. And that's the point at which I gave up the chasing money and having things to actually chasing fulfillment. And she was on a different path. Third, third marriage was great. But sadly, she died of a brain tumor three years after we got married. Um, and yeah, that was a difficult experience, but I learned a lot from that. And my fourth marriage, my last marriage is, is absolutely wonderful. Um, yeah, I'm with somebody who loves me for who I am rather than the, well, I love you, but if only you did X, it would be even better. Um, and we are able to have really open conversations about things that we do, which might be irritating each other also conversations about the important stuff. What what do we want out of life? And it is Gwen who um, pushed me, challenged me to, to write my first book. I started writing it on our honeymoon. Um, so greater love hath no woman than getting their man to do something that's really important for them. Particularly on your honeymoon. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm raising a wry smile at that one. Um, 
I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your, your third wife. Uh, you said you learned a lot from that. Can I ask what you learned? I learned several things. I, th- I think the first is about being open with other people and telling them what you're going through. And the, the amount of support you can get and the love you can get from other people is is absolutely huge. I think the second thing is to treat it sounds a bit trite treat every day as a, as if it's your last because we never know when we're going to die but just yeah follow your passion don't put it off because it might never happen um and enjoy every day as much as you can and you know share share love around um with your partner don't hold back um and the third thing I learned from it is is about grief really I yeah shortly after she died I yeah I wasn't feeling great and I'd been invited to a to a retreat that weekend and I thought okay I woke up on Saturday morning I thought I've got a choice I can lie in bed feeling sorry for myself or I can go to this retreat and bizarrely the title of it was loving yourself and at the end of that day, I came away feeling absolutely transformed. I felt like a huge weight lifted from me. And three realizations. First is I didn't need to grieve any longer uh, because the grieving probably started three years before when she'd been diagnosed with yeah. an incurable brain tumor. Secondly, I could love and love again. Uh, that wasn't the end of my loving career. And thirdly, I could enjoy life. I didn't have to carry this shadow of something awful out happening to somebody I loved because the memories are always there, but the future is something that I really need to seize onto and enjoy. So the, those were the important learnings from loss. And some people found that a bit weird. You know, they'd come up to me and say, how are you feeling, Neil? You must be feeling really bad. And... You know, that presupposition, I must be feeling really bad. They found it hard to cope with the fact, actually, I'm feeling really good. Yeah, I, I think it's very easy to assume that there's what the way you must feel in loss. It's Absolutely. a very personal thing, and we shouldn't. This goes back to one of the things we talked about in, in the Monday episode, which, and as we touched on earlier as well when talking about your father. Um, we shouldn't assume that we know what's going on in someone else's mind. Uh, and make judgments based on that absolutely and you know so many people ask sorts of questions like are you okay and the standard response to that would be yeah of course or or a grunt actually the question how are you feeling right now can unlock the Mm. reality and get much more authentic and powerful responses that's that's a great great advice. You know, uh, the the are you okay is something I talk about in just ask, and and the the the, the I call it the Kevin the teenager response. Uh, <laughs> any fans of Harry Enfield will know what I mean. Yeah. Um, the, the grunts. Okay. Um, and, and we need to ask more intelligent questions if we want people to, to open up. Uh, a, another uh, approach to that, Ivan Meisner shared with me um, in the book, is semantic differential questioning, where you say, how are you? I'm okay. How are you feeling right now? How? And then a third question, how are you coping with? So that yeah. you draw people out a little bit more and give them permission to speak, showing them that you're genuinely interested. 
Yeah. And and that question of how you're feeling right now, they might come up with one answer, but then yeah. I think you need to ask, repeat the question. Yeah. And then and anything else until they run out of feelings. Because often yeah. the the real feeling is buried some way down. Yeah, that's what that's what I call it in, in terms of um explaining what you do or, or what referrals you're looking for, the so what question. Mm. So what, so what, so what, until you, you, you really can't go any further and, and, and dig deeper. When people are happy to, to open up, I think, is, is key there. Uh, Neil, we could carry on on this tack for ages, but this is a shorter podcast. So uh, I, I'm going to finish off by asking you the books, the podcast, the, uh, the, the talks, whatever it might be that you have inspired you in your career or you've that made a big impact recently. Okay, I, I would say three things. Um, the first is by Simon Sinek, Getting to Why, and that's that's probably the first business book I read with any interest and passion. And that you know the focus on why you're doing what you're doing, why is an organisation doing what they're doing, I, I found incredibly powerful. And you know that's led to every single business lead I've worked with. That's the first book they need to read. That's the first video they need to watch. That's the first question I keep asking them. You know, what, what's your why? Um, the second book I, I love is Black Box Thinking by Matthew Syed um, about, you know, the power of making mistakes, the power of learning from mistakes. And it's okay to make mistakes. If you're not making mistakes, you're not trying hard enough. Um, and, you know, as he says in the, in the medical profession, mistakes are hushed up, they're hidden because they're embarrassing. And the result of that is thousands of people die every year because of it. Um, and the third is a TED Talk by Tim Urban, Getting Inside the Mind of a Master Procrastinator. I, I found that really educational for me. It made made me understand what I, I'd been doing for so long. You know, if somebody gave me three months to do something, I'd spend two and a half months worrying about the fact I wasn't doing it. And I finally burst into action in the last week or the last day. So I'd gone through three months of agony when, yeah. if I only did it at the beginning, life would be so much easier. So I'm trying to front load my work now and do it in the moment rather than worrying about it. And so many of us are driven by deadlines. I think that's that's great advice. The Simon Sinek's work uh, gets recommended a lot by our guests. I'm always raving about um, uh, Matthew Side's Rebel, um, Rebel Ideas. Um, but black box thinking's been mentioned before. Uh, I know about the procrastination talk, but I haven't got around to watching it yet. And I had to, <laughs> I had to finish with a dad joke, uh, <laughs> a really bad one on that one. Uh, Neil, uh, thank you for opening up and sharing. Uh, it, it, I think a very different episode uh, of this short podcast today, um, but I think one that will be very helpful to a lot of people. So I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for joining me. No, my pleasure. Thanks, Andy. So thanks again to Neil. And yeah, it, it was a very different, very moving uh, conversation. And I, I, I took a lot from it. I hope that you did as well. Um, please do check out our conversation from Monday, uh, all about his relationship paradigm. Uh, and if you've enjoyed this, please do share it with your networks, post a review uh, and just let the world know so more people can find the Connected Leadership Podcast. And I'll see you again soon. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great connected leadership tips.